So we're actually looking at Acts 11 in our series now, which we've gone through for, I think, about a couple of months. And we're actually going to focus in on verses 19 to 30, which is the story of how the church in Antioch was established. But I wanted to read the whole uh, chapter for us all so we can get a grasp of the context beforehand. As a way of introduction, when we often think of an idea, a global idea, a movement or a business that's so prevalent, so familiar to us, regards of where we're from across the world, there often is a time in place, a tipping point, where we can, it's true that we can say that that thing, that place, that idea truly went global, that after this tipping point, everything was outward looking, it, it expanded, it, it wasn't going to hold back in anymore. We may use such terms as going viral, but we're going global. And then to the point where that thing or that idea, that movement, that business is no longer peculiar or specific to its point of origin. It's no longer parochial. It's global in nature. And there are three examples I can bring forward to, uh, to bring this to mind. Uh, firstly, in the world of IT, Facebook. Facebook started off as a simple social networking tool within Harvard University. But in September 2006, the decision was made to open it to everyone with two simple criteria. Does anyone know what those two simple criteria is to get a Facebook account? Age, you've got to be 13. And secondly, you have to have an email address. That's all. Yep. And now, and because of that, it's since become the greatest procrastination tool ever known to mankind, me included. Secondly, McDonald's, the, great, the, the most prevalent, largest, most profitable restaurant chain in the world. In 1955, Ray Kroc bought out the McDonald brothers, uh, bought the business off them and the business model, and then aggressively expanded the chain. And there's a recent film, The Founder, about that process of Ray Kroc and, uh, and what he did with McDonald's. Thirdly, perhaps a bit more seriously, the black American civil rights movement Nowadays, we take for granted that no, there is no discrimination based on colour in, in the continental US. However, legally, however, Rosa Parks, on the 1st of December, also 1955 actually, Rosa Parks, you may recall her name, famously sat in the front of a bus where she was not allowed to, where people of colour were not allowed to. And that, in many respects, started a change in tactics of the American black civil rights movement to one of civil disobedience and then led to the advancement we have today in terms of non-discrimination in the workplace and in greater society. So tipping points where things go global. Well, the thing can be said of the early church that we read about in Acts today, when it truly goes global, it breaks out from its point of origin within Jerusalem. And that's what Acts 11 verses 19 to 30 deals with today. And that's what I'll be preaching on. So to recap, in our series on Acts, what has been the seminal, the pivotal verse that Russell keeps referring back to? Acts chapter 1, there it is, verse 8. And it reads, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in all Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. This is both an instruction from Jesus it is a declaration, it is a manifesto, his mission plan encapsulated in one simple, intense statement. The remarkable thing is there, there is no mystery to what God has planned for his church. This, this is an amazing thing. God chooses us worthy. He's utterly transparent when it comes to his church plan. There's nothing hidden. It's, it's not special knowledge that only some people through rituals or some elite who have, who have plumbed the depths, who have prayed 
can get an insight into notes. It's plainly written in Scripture for us all. Jesus' own words. This is how I'm going to build my church. There's no secret mission plan. It's out in the open. And there is a clear order and structure. It is not haphazard or unplanned. First in Jerusalem, then in Judea, and then greater Samaria, and then from thence on to the ends of the earth, the remotest parts. But also God doesn't leave his disciples, his only followers, to their own devices. He's not, he just doesn't give them these words and leaves them to their own means. He's not a fire and forget God. It's not as if God says to one of his angels, hey, look here, hold my beer and watch this, grabs a big rock, chucks it in the pond and then watches the ripples and then walks away from it. That's not how God operates. He does not a set and forget God. We've already seen in previous actors, uh, chapters of Acts that God intervenes in miraculous and undeniable ways. God builds his church in miraculous and undeniable ways. And this is the big idea, the one line if you want to take away from this sermon. God executes his global plan for his church by his hand working through faithful followers. God executes the plan, the global plan for his church by his hand working through faithful followers. And what, how has he done this? How has he done this miraculous and undeniable ways? Well, just in the book of Acts, firstly... Jesus' resurrection and sustained period of teaching over a month to dozens, hundreds of people before ascending into heaven, Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 2, the disciples obey his command to wait in Jerusalem, wait for the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit does come in a miraculous way in tongues of fire that enables them, it gives them bold confidence to go and speak to all peoples in different languages, languages that they've never been able to speak prior. Thirdly, the conversion of Saul that we read uh, and we heard about a couple of Sundays ago in Acts chapter 9. Yeah, it's the greatest opponent of the Christian church, the great persecutor, hauling people off to jail, obtaining letters, and in one miraculous encounter with God on a road to Damascus, now becomes the greatest missionary in all of human history and the author of half the New Testament. Saul, who then became Paul. And then last week we heard about the filling of the Gentiles of the Holy Spirit, the vision to Peter, and then the incredible timing as soon as the vision ends of, the, of Cornelius and the Gentiles coming to seek him out because they were also told to seek him out. And as Peter's preaching to them, we have a real-time filling of the Holy Spirit of the Gentiles, the undeniable part. And we see that in Acts chapter 11 when Peter recounts this to others who are confronting him about speaking to Gentiles. All he has to say is, well, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. I love it. Like they were confronted in his face. And he said, well, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's like, oh, well, in that case, we're good. It's, it's fine. It's obvious that God's blessed them as well. Miraculous and undeniable. And through these acts of God, literal acts of God, our Father in heaven shows his passion, his power, his zeal for his kingdom to carry out his kingdom work. He is executing his plan that he set up so clearly in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And if we're somehow tempted to let the importance of the remarkable nature of this pass us by, maybe let's ponder what might have become to the church if God had not carried out these acts, if God had not intervened to carry out his global plan. I think it is fair to say that up till now, Jesus' followers were very much seen as a Jewish cult, an offshoot, a perversion, a mutation of the old uh, the Jewish religion and the Mosaic law. Which is why probably why they face so much 
opposition. They were seen as betrayers of that old faith to Yahweh. And in very much so, Jesus' followers in the early church were products of their age. They were hemmed in by their culture. They were defined by how they were brought up, their social economic condition. See, up to this point in chapter 11, they had preached only to Jews where they traveled. And when they did travel to other places outside Jerusalem, the first point of call was to the synagogue. That's where they started preaching. It was a Jewish, they were operating in that Jewish paradigm. God needed to break them out of that pattern. And he did, miraculously and undeniably. And thank God that Christianity did not stay a Jewish offshoot, a cult or a perversion or mutation of the Jewish, old Jewish faith. This is not what God wants or planned. He's not content for his church to remain a monoracial, a single nation movement, truly global in nature. And so based on that, we come to Acts chapter 11, verse 19 to 30 which is what I've termed God closing the loop through the church in Antioch. He closes that loop that he started earlier. So in today's part of Acts 19 to 30 verses, we are given privileged witness to the tipping point where the church truly goes global and it's unstoppably on the path from this point on to go to the ends of the earth. It's like we're in the boardroom of Facebook and Zuckerberg decides to open it up to the world or we're in the bus with Rosa Parks at that moment where she chooses to defiantly sit in the front seat of the bus. But this is a far more greater, far more greater plan. It is God's plan, perfect plan, his mighty hand, boundless grace, working to go global with his church. So verse 19, we're given a recap here. Now then, those who had been scattered by persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. So this is a TV drama series. What does every TV drama series episode open with? Previously on whatever the series is. Previously on NCIS, or previously on um, whatever you're keen to watch at the moment. So it's a cue to the reader in the same way that we're given, oh, that's right, yeah, in a couple of episodes ago. So in the same way, Luke does the same thing for us. He says, hey, remember when in Acts chapter 7, previously on Acts chapter 7, Stephen was killed. He became the first martyr. But then Luke tells us, what was the effect of this? In Acts 8, a great persecution arose in the church and it scattered the dispersal of the Christian uh, Jesus' followers, the first Christian diaspora going out because of that great persecution. They weren't content just to kill Stephen. They wanted to persecute the whole church, and that's what caused the dispersal, the scattering. Let's put ourselves in the minds of those who have been forced to leave their homes as part of that diaspora. Might they have seen it as a disaster, a traumatic uprooting from their homes, they've lived all their lives, their communities, their villages, their livelihoods, lost, their means of income, gone, going underground, becoming fugitives. And now rejected by their own family and friends, their own society, their rulers. Do you think those might have been worried about how they could keep the movement going? Might they have been tempted to scale back their ambitions for the church? Actually, it's not worth it. It's too dangerous. Let's, let's keep it low-key. Might they have doubted God's provision and protection over them? I think the answer is for some of them, certainly yes. They would have been thinking that. But then what does Luke tell us? In verse 21, what's the result of this? The Lord's hand was with them, 
and the great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. It seems so understated, but you can almost see the triumphant tone that Luke infuses that one verse. No, it was not a defeat. It was not a disaster. With the benefit of hindsight, we can see that God has wondrously caused this dispel, this traumatic uprooting for his own good, all part of his plan all along. And so God's plan goes global through, by his hand, through faithful believers, still keep spreading the message despite the trauma, the disruption that they experienced, the displacement they've had to go through. And Luke is in no doubt, and nor should we, as to the cause of this. The hand of the Lord was upon them, verse 21. You see, this is God not just working in a multiracial, multinational way. This is God working in a multidimensional way. Even while other things were happening, conversion of Saul, things going on in Jerusalem, he'd already, he's already worked out what he was going to do in Antioch. And he closed the loop there by the ch- first church in Antioch starting. To use an analogy, I'm a fan. Uh, one of my favorite TV series is Breaking Bad. And for those of you who know it, will probably understand why I like it. It's five seasons. It's about a high school science teacher in the U.S. who resorts to making methamphetamine to uh, pay for his cancer treatment. And I love it. It's five seasons. And what I find remarkable about Breaking Bad is little what seem like inconsequential actions or details that happen in earlier seasons, even in seasons one, then relate and get resolved in later seasons and come back or have a cause and effect. In many ways, I I see it as a modern morality tale that every action that he takes, the protagonist, or every fact at, at the time seems like a reasonable, to him anyway, a reasonable course of action, he has to pay for it later on. It comes back to bite him. But happily, in this case, the analogy points to the fact that what seemed like a disaster, a trauma at the start, is comes for eternal good in Acts chapter 11. What happened in Acts 8? A few chapters later, we can see, with the benefit of hindsight, wondrously, miraculously, God brings about for his plan. So where did they go? This was a crucial part of God's plan as well. Those that were dispersed in Acts 8, well, in the case of Antioch, it's no coincidence why this is so important, why the church grew here and planted here. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Then the Julio-Claudian Empire, third largest behind Rome, Alexandria, which is the Roman colony or Roman province in Egypt, the second greatest and one of the greatest cities in ancient, and then following closely, Antioch, the third largest Roman city in its empire. It was the capital of the province of Syria. Syria was a strategically important province. It marked a boundary of the Roman Empire and the civilized world as they saw it between them and the Persian or the Sassanid Empire, the great nemesis of the Romans to the east, where Persia is and Iran is right now. So in many respects, it held the line. At any one time, it was heavily militarized. There were two to three Roman legions posted in there to guard the eastern flank borders of the Roman Empire. It was also the crossing point from trade routes from the east passing through Syria and thence into Europe and to Italy uh, for the Roman market. What this is saying is that the church in Antioch was started in one of the most cosmopolitan areas in Rome and hostile to monotheism, to this message that there is only one God. If you think our current society is hostile, and it is to the gospel, I think you'd be hard-pressed to argue that it was any more hostile than what they were facing in Antioch. 
Roman society, Greco-Roman society, was built on the premise that they are a pantheon of gods and they must be appeased and, and, and pleased at all times. So to preach that, that there is only one God is utterly hostile and opposed to the very foundations of the society or Roman society and the message that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, then what was so different about this church in Antioch? Why did the church go global in Antioch? Well, we learned that some of those Jews followers, yeah, they only spoke to Greeks when, uh, to Jews when they're there, but others preached to the Greeks. The church was also established by non-apostles. It was like a grassroots movement. There wasn't a, it wasn't a deliberate missionary journey by the people in Jerusalem. And we're not told that they start in a synagogue. They might have, but we're not told that they start in a synagogue, which was the pattern up to the point when people did go out on missionary trips. Those are significant. But I think what's more significant is what was not different about the church in Antioch. In verse 20, the message is the same in Antioch as in everywhere else. Men went from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The same message. Let's not take for granted these simple words. They preached the Lord Jesus. Five simple words. Or the letter gloss over us and let t- take it for granted. Whilst we're not given the privilege of the full sermons or what they might have preached, unlike we can deduce by previous sermons in Acts and also what Stephen preached up to the point of his death, and it's a fair assumption that that would be exactly what they were preaching in Antioch. In Acts chapter 2, to recap on the previous sermons, Peter proclaimed, Therefore, when he was preached after, directed after Pentecost, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this, that God made this Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. They preaching that Jesus of Nazareth, the itinerant carpenter, unqualified teacher, informal leader, is the Lord, the promised Messiah the Christ. In Acts chapter 3 and 4, Peter in the temple healing the lame man in the name of who? Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Get up and walk. And later on when they're called to account before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish elders, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified, by whom God has raised from the dead that this man stands before you healed. And then the cause of the dispersal, the death of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, Stephen himself said, They killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. I see heaven open and a son of man standing in the right hand of God. These are the words that get him killed. Next chapter chapter 10, verse 36, when Peter is ministering to the Gentiles who have come to him, brought to him by God. He preaches peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. And later in verse 42 of chapter 10, He's the one appointed by God as a judge of the living and the dead. So in the same way, those that established a church in Antioch in chapter 11, they preached the Lord Jesus. That is what they would have been preaching. The name of Jesus is the defining point. It is the dividing point when it comes to Christianity. In Acts chapter 4 and 5, the Sanhedrin commands Peter and the apostles, not once but twice, do not preach the name of Jesus. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, Peter declares salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. 
in Acts chapter 2, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Not any Jew, not any man, not any rich person, anyone who calls upon their name. And poignantly, at the point of death, Stephen declares, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I think it's significant what Luke does not include in his account of Antioch. He doesn't tell us that there are any miraculous signs, the infilling of the Holy Spirit like other previous times. Maybe that happened, but we're not told that. But that's perhaps the wondrous thing of all. That's all they needed, preaching that Lord Jesus is the Christ. Nothing more, nothing less than that gospel preached. Well, then what's the reaction from the apostles? So here in Jerusalem, or if you want to call it Jesus Incorporated Headquarters, this curiosity. They, they, they hear about the church in Antioch. He's doing such great things that they actually hear it all the way in Jerusalem. And they send an expedition in the form of Barnabas. They were curious and they were thankful and they were generous. They sent up Barnabas, the son of encouragement, his nickname. I think it's important who they did not send. See, others who had been giving Peter about a hard time about you know, preaching to uncircumcised people, but Barnabas wasn't a son of, wasn't one of those people. We learn about him previously in two, on two occasions prior to chapter 11. In Acts 4, Barnabas was the one that first sold his property, a field, and gave the proceeds to the church, and that spurred a whole range of other generous acts. And more importantly, in Acts chapter 9, verse 27, Barnabas is the one that attests to Saul. He testifies to Saul on Saul's behalf to the others. When they're all skeptical about whether Saul was for real and genuine in his conversion, Barnabas is the one who backs him up. I think his impact is tremendous. It's no coincidence that they sent Barnabas to Antioch to check it out. He's that son of encouragement. I think that he was also a Cypriot, so he would have been from the same place as the, the Cypri- Cypriot Jews who established the church in uh, Antioch. But more importantly, his impact was tremendous. He was a boon to the Antioch Christians. He truly is true to his nickname. He was a son of encouragement. I think if we... Now, he's one of those people I truly look forward to meeting in heaven when we get there. He just seems like the kind of guy that would, everyone gets along. Like You cannot dislike him. Open and transparent, trustworthy, just filled with spirit and passion for God. And Barnabas, in turn, he sees what's God's there. He's grateful and he's generous. And he goes in and he goes, I need backup. And he travels to Tarsus, which is 160 kilometers. In those days, it would have been three or four days' journey. He goes out and seeks out Saul, whom he attested to as being converted. And God, once again, is closing the loop through that. Because what did God promise to Saul when he converts him on the way to Damascus? Saul, you would be my apostle to the Gentiles. And this is where Saul starts on God's personal mission plan to him. Paul, uh, Saul, who then becomes Paul, starts in Antioch. God closing the loop once again. He begins his mission to the Gentiles there. I think it's important to note that this wasn't a short-term mission. It wasn't a pet project. It wasn't a pop-in health check. How are you going? Going good. Right, see you guys later. Pop in. No, they stayed a whole year with them. They dedicated a whole year. A year they could have been doing plenty of other things in other places, but they chose to stay there and they chose to invest more and more there. One year of meeting and teaching that we learn in verse 26. Sustained presence and work. In with the grassroots in Antioch, in that hostile city to God. We don't detect any sign, at least I can't read into it. There was no sign of 
half-heartedness of, of holding back or even resentment or jealousy. Like, oh, we're, we're from Jerusalem, but you, you, off, you upstarts and Antioch thinking and such. There's none of that. Like, no, this is God acting. We, no. What reason do we have not to support them and build them up? So how do we know that this is the, the true tipping point I was talking about, where the church goes global? How do we know that this actually lasted, that it wasn't just a flash in a pan? Well, I love this bit in verse 26. The term Christians was first used to describe the people at Antioch. That's, they're our namesake. We are their namesake in many respects. We are their heirs. Antioch gave back to the parent church in verse 29-30 by money and by returning. So imagine they've had unimaginably good work being brought up by Saul and Barnabas for a whole year, but they willingly sent them back, their most trusted, treasured senior pastors, back to Jerusalem along with money that they had gathered. So they gave back to the parent church. So they've closed that loop back to the beginning. The church at Antioch would go on to become one of the five largest churches in the Roman Empire. Since we're so close to uh, Anzac Day, I'll use a military analogy. In military tactics, we are taught that what is sacrosanct, particularly when you're as a large group or in a large unit, you must always offer your flanking units or your team's mutual support. Whilst you, have your, you might have your specific task or your specific mission to do, you must always keep in mind who's around you and the greater mission that you serve. My friend, uh, who, I went, who Nick and I went through Duntrin with, is currently uh, side by side helping the Iraqi forces uh, who are at the forefront in the battle to liberate Mosul, a city of two million people, a city, a battle that will go down in history that will define our generation to eject Islamic State uh, from that large city. It is the largest stronghold left in Iraq for Islamic State. And every day I get the situation reports from men at work. I see the map, the green bits and the red bits that are gradually pushing up. And it's like a slow, steady war that creeps up. And I can see the boundaries between the Iraqi forces on one side and the next fighting through tough work, through closed city booby traps. Islamic State are willingly forcing civilians to stay in their basements as human shields, and they have to work through all that. It's tough work. The Iraqis are taking lots of casualties, but they are slowly but surely gaining ground, and Australians and others are helping them with that, advising them. And they know that if one unit, Iraqi unit, goes forward, the next one needs to have their flank there must be no gaps in that front. If they need to rededicate or redirect resources because one side is flagging, they should willingly do that. This underpins all military tactics. You cannot afford to present gaps or uh, fissures through which the enemy can exploit. I see the same thing in Christian churches. There is no room for dissension or jealousy or petty grievances to affect our global mindset, the global mission of the church. Because what will happen? Can you imagine how immeasurably damaging it is if we in the Western world were to hold back on what are our prayers, our resources, our thoughts, our prayers, purely because we only focus in on Gungahlin or Canberra or Australia? That's not what we're called to. We should, in other words, follow Barnabas' example, and it is a great example. Firstly, verse 23, grateful be grateful. We are the legacy of God's global mission plan. Friends, that pond is still rippling 
the rippling still continues and God still continues to work his plan. He's not absent. Rather, his hand is closely on us all, working through to this day, like it did back in Antioch, through faithful followers. Secondly, Barnabas' key message, remain true and faithful to the word. Let's stay true to the central message that Jesus is Lord. Keep the main thing the main thing. There is no need to embellish it, no need for tricks or gimmickry. We preach the Lord Jesus, Lord and crucified. Thirdly, I think we should be committed and generous like Barnabas was and Saul and then back. Like Julia, I think... Thank you that we, uh, we pray for Julia. Friends, let be, let's be good senders. Julia, in my view, left for honourable reasons because she is an honourable woman, as she has explained to many of us in her emails, to help out her brother. I love the fact that we have been good senders in that regard. Let's continue to do that. Let's avoid an us-versus-them mentality. When uh, the Harrison congregation was going, we would drive past two, maybe three churches on the way there, Perhaps the right thing to do is pray for other churches. There's no need. There's, there's no need. For, don't get emotionally attached to one ministry or pet projects. Ministry is intensely personal, but it should not be taken personally. Um, I've been in churches, a part of churches, where uh, a dynamic, really charismatic leader, uh, a pastor, had great visions for the church, but often the pitfall was they would get too emotionally attached to those things. And when things change or God's plan changes, they might get hard to adjust to those changes or even the personal relations that alter around them. Friends, I'm comfortable saying this because Russell isn't here, he's helping out with kids' biz, but may I commend Russell and the church leadership in that regard. I'm perfectly willing and happy to submit to Russell's leadership and the others because he, he doesn't have that mindset of being jealously guarding whatever it is. If Julie wants to go, she, she should go and she should go with her best prayers and wishes. May I commend his example to us all in that regard. A good example uh, of this as well, I want to tell a story, is when we lived in Washington, D.C. Let me stand closer. And so we were part of an Anglican church in North America. And before you think about how strange that is, I'll explain why it's called, it was called the Anglican Church in North America. See, traditionally, the Church of England, as established in America, is called the Episcopalian denomination because you can't call it the Church of England in America, of course, it'd be too strange. But over time, over decades, through painful experience and lots of prayerfulness and thoughtfulness, a branch of the Episcopalian churches decided that they could not in good conscience continue to be part of the denomination for theological, moral, and reasons of conscience and decided to split off but continue as the Anglican denomination in North America. And they did so knowing that they would still need to come under some guidance, headship, and authority for good governance and oversight. And so they chose willingly to submit themselves to an archdiocese in Nigeria, an Anglican archdiocese in Nigeria. And I was part of that church, one of those churches that uh, decided to join part of that. Um, there was that convocation. And in no time and in no occasion whatsoever did I detect any resentment, any jealousy, any grievance of this step are willingly coming under the headship of this archdiocese in Nigeria. Isn't that remarkable that North America, who we think is the most Christian country in the world, when in fact, no. I, based on current rates of Christianity and conversion, China is on track to become the biggest, by, by sheer gross amount, the biggest ch- Christian country in the world. What's our mindset when we think about that? Not jealousy, I hope. Gratefulness. Excitement. 
So let's press beyond the fringe. It could be geographically. It could be socially. It could be culturally. It could be politically. I think I've got more friends who are gay or Greens voters than friends in the Australian Christian lobby. I think I'm sort of okay with that, actually. We argued vehemently over different things, but we still have open lines of communication. God may choose to bring the lost to us as well. It happened in Peter and the Gentiles. It happened when Paul, Paul was distinctly unqualified to preach to the Gentiles. He was as Jewish as they came, but still God chose him to be the missionary to the Gentiles. A couple of more examples to finish up. My parents-in-law, who aren't here today, but I'll dob them in when they come to church this afternoon when I preach the same prayer, um, same sermon, they, they're not in the military. And through no, uh, through no intent of their own, they now have a son in the army and then a son-in-law in the army. And they live in Nara, two hours' drive from the on the coast. And there is a large Navy base. That's where all the Navy aviation helicopter uh, units are based. And through the church, now a Baptist, they were, the, they, they were part of at the time, and through the home group that they ran in their house, close by the church, just not by any deliberate intent or planning on their part, but a lot of military people who attended the church or brought their friends to that church from the Navy and then became part of their home group. And through that, hosting that home group, they did, God did wonderful things through Navy people who are either Christians or searching for God in Nara. Uh, I'm even invited to give the Anzac Day address at the Alexander McConaughey Centre, that's the jail, here, through friends. I've no idea. Well, I've no life experience I can draw on to try and empathise with the, uh, the people in jail there. But I do have the gospel, and I will make sure that God is glorified as we remember Anzac Day, along with other Australians on Tuesday. In a recent holiday we took to the South, uh, North Pacific, Northwest Pacific in the US, we came across a wonderful church in Portland, and yet another hostile church to the gospel. It was a Chinese church planted there hundreds of years, over 100 years ago, back when there were Chinese migrants coming in for the gold rush. They were an anomaly where they were in inner Portland, highly affluent area, uh, very affluent, um, hardly any Chinese. So the reason why the church was planted there had long gone. All the Chinese people had gone elsewhere. They stuck out as a sore thumb in that part of Portland. And they were a small fellowship of only maybe a couple dozen people. But they chose and recognized an opportunity. They chose to minister to student pilots who come from mainland China to come to America to learn to get a pilot's license and then go back to China to become commercial aviators for various Chinese airlines. And because they were there for a long time, they ministered to those student pilots, brought them into their fellowship. And when those pilots went home, the whole village was converted through that. That... They had no particular qualifications, nothing special, except they had the words of eternal life, as do we. So remember, anyone who doesn't accept Jesus as Lord is spiritually beyond the fringe. We have the words of eternal life. That is the only qualification we need. That is the best qualification we have. Anyone who calls upon his name will be saved. In the words of one of my favorite songs at the moment, No other throne endures, no other song remains, but worthy is the Lamb. Who was for sinners slain when every knee shall bow and tongue confess, You are Lord, you are Lord.